Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We ask Holy Spirit that you will breathe upon it. Let it come alive. Let it change us. Let it equip us, strengthen us, break every yoke, lift every burden, Heavenly Father, and do more, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two Sundays ago, we, uh, we spoke about along the lines of uh, God answers prayers. And, you know, we went through Scripture um, examples that left us in no doubt whatsoever that, that God wants to answer our prayers. The, the, the wise king says the prayers of you and I are his delight. Uh, he says, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. He says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened unto you. He says, everyone who asks receives. And, you know, the, the, the scriptures, are, uh, uh, there are so many of them that point to this one truth, that God answers prayers. And we're saying this because we want to encourage ourselves into a place where we live a life <coughs> of answered prayers. But then we, I said I would go on to talk about certain things that can mess this up, certain things that can spoil this lovely life that we want to live, where we call out to God and he answers. Uh, what are these hindrances to a life of answered prayer? I want to talk to you today about seven of such hindrances. And the reason um, I, I want to bring this to you is that you must be aware of them so that you can avoid them because this life of answered prayers where we call and God answered is you, where you should be and where I, sh where I should be. It's where God intended that we should be. So what are these hindrances that the enemy tries to bring in? Uh, you know, he knows how to spoil a good thing um, and he tries to introduce these things knowing that it will spoil a good thing. It will, it will in a sense, interrupt our communications with God. It will become uh, like a, a, a boulder that is thrown into a well or boulders that are thrown into, into a well to stop the well, the, the water from coming out from the well or the fountain. What are these seven things? Well, number one, is sin. Because the platform for a rich and fulfilling prayer life is our relationship with God. <coughs> Therefore, anything that affects that relationship negatively affects our prayer life. The Bible puts it like this, the prophet Isaiah, and, and, and this is graphic, uh, this says it all. Frankly, you don't need to say anything after this, he says in Isaiah, the 59th chapter, verses 1 and 2, Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. You know, it's not a God problem. 
you know, when we call out, God gives us a guarantee that he hears. He's not a man that he should lie, nor is he the son of man, <coughs> excuse me, that he should change his mind. So the prophet says, it's not that when God doesn't respond, it's not because he's too weak, the situation is too complex, it's too severe, it's too confusing. What God says to himself, what should I do? When we call, it is not that suddenly God has gone deaf and he can't hear, so he can't fulfill his promise to us that if we call, he will answer. This, he goes on to say, it is your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Grave scripture that because of our sins, it is possible that as a result of our sins, God turns away from us and will not listen. So our calling is in vain, is futile. There will be no results from it because of our sins. That tells you how dangerous sin is. Because once sin is introduced, it totally disrupts that relationship that, that avenue through which we call and he hears. If, there's, if, if you understand this, if you understand what the psalmist says in Psalms 28 verse 9, he says, well, the, the, the wise king says in, in, in Proverbs 28 verse 9, the wise king says, if you close your heart and refuse to listen to God's instruction, even your prayer will be despised. Is it possible for a person's prayer to be despised by God? The, the, the wise king says it is possible. When you refuse to listen to God's instructions, you harden your heart. You do as you like. You turn away from him. You involve your hands in sinful things. Your heart is clouded. It's dark with sin. The, the, the wise king says that, God will despise such a person's prayer. The psalmist puts it like this, Psalm 66 verse 18. Yet if I had closed my eyes to sin, the Lord would have closed his ears to my prayer. I, this, this just makes it clear. If I am involved in sin, if I, if I don't get away from it, then because I have closed my eyes to it, I've pretended like I don't know that it that is there. I've pretended like I don't know that I'm in, involved in it. I've treated it with levity. Then because I have done that, God will close his ears to my prayer. It is possible for God to close his ears to a person's prayer. It is possible for God to despise a person's prayer. It is definitely possible for God to turn away and not listen anymore. And the Bible makes us understand that the one thing that can make those things happen is that we have sin in our lives. Now, it's not to say that we fall into sin and then God does that. No, this is a merciful father, a gracious father. Uh, and he makes ample opportunity for us to come back to him in repentance. Uh, 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 makes that clear. As it tells us, the Amplified Version, that this is God's nature. Once we come to him in repentance, then he forgives our sins. It is the person who chooses to live in habitual sin as a lifestyle. The person who turns away from God. The person who does not get convicted by the word of God. Convicted by the spirit of God. Hardens their heart and thinks they can get away with it. 
The Bible says that person should expect that God will turn away, not listen anymore, despise the person's prayer, and close his ears to that person's prayer. So number one is sin. That's why you must do everything that you can to keep away from sin. Anyone who wants to lure you to sin is not a friend. That person is an enemy because they want you to get to a place where your prayers are not heard by God. And what kind of life will that be? Number two, where our motives are wrong. Where our motives are wrong. James 4 verse 2. In fact, verses 2 and 3. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. So that lays down the principle we laid down two Sundays ago. That it is all about asking. If you don't ask, you don't get. If you don't call, he, won't, he doesn't have to answer. If you don't pray and bring it back to him, then don't expect answered prayers. The responsibility on us is to call. You do not have, the writer says, because you do not ask. But then he goes on for those who are asking. He goes on to say in verse 3, you ask and do not receive. So there's the one who does not get because they don't ask at all. They don't pray at all. Their life is prayerless. They are steeped in the sin of prayerlessness. So that's their problem that they have not asked at all. They don't have a private prayer life. They don't talk to God. They don't commune with God. We can do 21 for 21 and multiply it how many times they will never be involved. They don't pray. So they don't have because they don't ask. It's an arrogant place to be where you think, I don't need God, I don't need to ask him. But then the writer goes on to say that those who ask, but they don't receive. Now, what is the problem? He says the problem is because they ask amiss. That He says you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Your asking is wrong. The motives are wrong. You're asking simply for to consume it on yourself. In, in the Passion Translation, the Bible says, and if you ask, you, you won't receive it, even though you're asking, because you are asking with corrupt motives, seeking only to fulfill your own selfish desires. It's about your own selfish desires. It has nothing to do with God's will, nothing to do with God's plans, nothing to do with being a blessing to others. It's not outward looking, it's inward looking. It's about your own selfish desires. The, 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 the Passion Translation says, even if you ask, it's like saying, don't waste your time. Once your motives are wrong, you will not receive it. Charles Spurgeon says this, when a man so prays in the way we have described, he asks God to be his servant and to gratify his desires. Nay, worse than that, he wants God to join him in the service of his lusts. 
That's what that kind of prayer is about. It's about gratifying our desires only, joining us to, asking God to join us to service our lost. My brother and my sister, check the motive of your prayer when you are praying and it just doesn't seem that there's a response. At least tick that box that it is not because my motives are corrupt, not because I'm asking with, for, with, a, with a wrong heart for the wrong purposes. It's selfish. It's about me and me alone. So someone might say, well, how do I know what the right motive is? Well, Jesus gives us uh, a template in, in that template of prayer. How do I know that this is the right motive? Well, it's the right motive when it lines up with God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, God's word. It's the right motive. So Jesus teaches us that this is how you determine the right motive in this, this sentence of that pattern of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the right motive, that it's God, it's ultimately about you. It's about your kingdom. It's about your will, your will in my life, your will in my family, your will in the church, your will in the nation. I'm submitted to your will. I'm coming because I know this is your will. Your word tells me this is your will. I am certain this is your will. Your spirit has confirmed this is your will. It's not about me. I get blessed by it, but really it is that the, that others might be, able, might be blessed by it, that I might fulfill your plans and purposes for my life. It's your agenda that is driving it. That's when we know that the motives are right. Number three, how we treat others. Our relationships with others can affect the efficacy of our prayers. And there are many different relationships. Frankly, it's our relationships with others, anybody. I mean, I can pick some examples. Proverbs 21, verse 13. If you close your heart to the cries of the poor, then I'll close my ears when you cry out to me. That's what God is saying. If you have an opportunity, he has blessed you, to be a blessing to the poor in some way. He knows you have the opportunity. He knows how he has blessed you. He knows that he has given you the resources. You hear the cries of the poor, whether those cries come as an announcement from a pulpit or something that you see on television maybe, or something that a friend mentions to you about someone or some family that is going through difficult times, especially where the Spirit of God prompts you to say, do something about that, but you close your ears to those cries of the people who are poor or who are less privileged than you, then he says that, because that's the way you have chosen to relate to them, then I'll close my ears when you cry out to me. He says in the husband-wife relationship, specifically to the husbands, in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, he says, husbands, and guys who are married, listen to me, you in turn must treat your wives with tenderness, viewing them as feminine partners, partners who deserve to be honored for they are co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 
Now, you know, there's a crazy irresponsibility by some irresponsible people who say that they understand that the man being the head of the, fam of, of the woman means that the woman is subservient to them. They don't understand headship in the Christ-like Christ way. For headship in a Christ-like way is a life of service to the one who you are head over. So it is headship, is a headship of service. So Christ is the head of the church. How did he show his headship? Guys, he went to the cross and died on the cross and that's how he showed that he was head. So if you want to be head of the woman that God has given you as a wife, then we judge your headship by the extent of your sacrifice and the extent of your service to her and to your children. That warped philosophy of a man who is a boss ruling by fiat in his home is something that is from the pits of hell. The biblical example is what, exactly what the Bible says. And this scripture says that you, we are co-heirs with our wives. We are co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life. That's who we are. And so the Bible says if you don't understand that, if you don't honor her, if you don't treat her well, my brother, it might not be any of the other things that you think are the issue. It might be that that is what is hindering your prayers because you are not treating her in the way that Christ set an example by treating his own wife, the church, the, bride, the church, his bride, in the, in the way that he sacrificially served her. Uh, 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 that's why we come to Christ. It's the sacrificial love that draws. Guys, you make your wife love you by how you sacrificially serve her. That's how it works. How you're concerned about her, watching her back, serving her. You're looking out for her good. She knows she can count on you. You're thinking about it before she gets there. You're giving your all for her to make her who God has destined her to be. Then she loves you. That's what triggers love in a woman. But when she feels that you're thinking about yourself, you're number one, you don't care, you don't sacrifice, you don't think about her, you don't watch her back, you're not thinking ahead for her, then she thinks I better sort myself out because I am living with a selfish character. It's that, that's not godly. And when we do that, it hinders our prayers. Number four. The Bible singles this out in relation to prayer, and I thought it was very important to mention it, unforgiveness. Matthew 6, verse 14. And when you pray, Jesus says, make sure you forgive the faults of others so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you. When you pray, the attachment is to prayer. When you pray, because he knew that this is a major hindrance. If there is unforgiveness in your heart, then you can't expect unforgiveness. You can't expect for forgiveness from God. And of course, it's going to affect and hinder your relationship with him and your prayer. Uh, Mark 11 verse 25 to 26 drives home this point. And whenever you stand praying... If you find that you carry something in your heart against another person, release him and forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also release you 
and forgive you of your faults. But if you will not release forgiveness, don't expect your Father in heaven to release you from your deeds. We, do, we, we, we check our hearts when we come to prayer to make sure that we're not holding anything against anybody. And I just want to say to someone who's listening, don't fall into a double jeopardy. Someone did offend you. Yes, they did. They hurt you. They stabbed you in the back. They betrayed you. They spoke in an unkind way to you. Yes, you are in a sense a victim. I agree with you. But don't dig a hole for yourself by holding them in unforgiveness because they have wronged you and they, it, that's one jeopardy. But then it, not forgiving them has allowed a second jeopardy to, to arise because then God will not forgive you because you haven't forgiven them. And, and, and sometimes people wonder, isn't that harsh? But Jesus gives a parable that helps us understand that that is not the case. That this is the reason why God holds it against someone in the sense that he will not forgive someone who hasn't forgiven another. This is the reason why. It's that parable of the ungrateful or unforgiving servant in Matthew the 18th chapter. And you know the story. Um, the Bible says, uh, Peter approached Jesus and says, how many times do I have to forgive my fellow believer who keeps offending me? And Jesus says seven times. No, Peter says seven times. Jesus says, no, not even seven times. Seven times, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times, seven times. What is he saying? 70 times seven means just keep forgiving, 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 forgiving. And then he goes on to say this. The lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated by this. And he goes on to tell them a story. The story was about a king who had servants who had borrowed money from the royal treasury from him. And so he decided to settle the accounts of all the servants. So he calls all the servants to say the money you borrowed from the treasury, pay it up. And there was one servant who could not pay it up. And so he fell before the king, he wept, he cried because the penalties were going to be harsh, his family was going to be affected. And the king says, okay, don't pay it up. One of the translations, modern translations of the Bible says it was uh, a million dollars that he, that he owed, whatever the amount was. And then that, that servant goes out from where he has been pleading and begging and he has been forgiven. He goes out and immediately sees another servant, one of his colleagues, who owes him, the modern translation says $20,000 compared to a million dollars. And he jumps on that servant, grabs his throat. That servant starts to beg him, appeal to him, almost in the same words, and he refuses. He says, verse 30, but the one who had his debt forgiven stubbornly refused to forgive what was owed him. He had his fellow servant thrown into prison and demanded he remain there until he repaid the debt in full. He said, I, I'm not interested. He's just come out from a place where he has been forgiven. He's forgotten all about that. And he says, I'm not interested. Pay me my money. Since you can't pay it, I'm throwing you. I'm going to get you thrown into jail until you can pay it. Now listen, if you want to understand God's mind with regards to for forgiveness, listen to this next four verses, verses 31 to 35. 
when his associates saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to the king and told him the whole story. The king said to him, you scoundrel, is this the way you respond to my mercy? Because you begged me, I forgave you the massive debt that you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to your fellow servant that I showed to you? In a fury of anger, the king turned him over to the prison guards to be tortured until all his debt was repaid. In this same way, my heavenly father will deal with any of you if you do not release forgiveness from your heart towards your fellow believer. What is it that makes God so angry when there is unforgiveness? Because he's thinking, you did worse to me. And yet I forgave you. My forgiveness was with the ultimate prize. My son himself. I showed you the ultimate act of love and of mercy. How come you can't forgive this person for what he has done? Now people say to me, does that mean I forget? That might take time. The Holy Spirit does that work of healing and of erasing. But I, have my, I, can, I can make a choice. I can choose by the Spirit of God, the grace of God, I can choose to forgive you. It might still hurt. It might still be painful. I might still be a work in process, a work that is in progress, that is progressing. But I can choose to forgive you and I choose to forgive you. I pray that there's someone out there who will choose to forgive someone so that they can receive forgiveness from God and not have their prayers hindered, irrespective of what they have done. Number five, what else hinders our prayers? Unbelief and doubt. Because faith is integral to a life of answered prayers. You know, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter and the 6th verse, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that God is. It's a faith issue. We are coming in prayer believing that God is. He's who he says he is. He's who the Bible says he is. We're not coming doubting that God is. The writer says must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek, seek him. There's a part that expectation plays in the place of prayer. We're not coming just because of a re, it's a religious ritual. We're not coming just because we think, well, what else can I do? No, we're coming because we know that God is. He's who the Bible says he is. We search the Bible so that we understand who God is. And as we find out more about who God is, it lifts our faith and encourages us because this is the God that we come to. And we come also because we know that it's not just that God is, it's that he's a God who answers prayers. He rewards those who diligently seek him. And so we come with that level of faith. Now someone will be asking, how can I achieve that level of faith? How do I get there so that when I come, I am coming with a certainty in my heart as to who God, who God is? as to what God can do, as to what God says he will do. <clears throat> I'm also coming knowing that God will respond to my prayers. How do I get there? Well, it's a synergy that takes place in our lives. It's a synergy between the word of God and the spirit of God. 
the more I am in the Word, studying the Word, the more I am yielding, submitting, surrendering to, to the Spirit. Like I say all the time, there is a point where that, there's this combustion, that synergy reaches its point, you know, of, of its maximum point, where there's a combustion, a joining together of the study of the Word, the reading of the Word, the Word of God in me, and the Spirit of God. And something happens that when, when there's that combustion that releases faith into me to believe God for what I am asking Him for. So how do I achieve it? I achieve it by being in the Word, studying, reading, meditating on the Word of God, confessing the Word of God, making the Word of God priority in my life. I, believe it, I, I achieve it by submitting to the Spirit of God, building my relationship with Him, getting more intimate with Him, yielding to Him. Ian Bounds says this, unless the vital forces of prayer are supplied with God's Word, Prayer is flabby. He goes on to say in another place, the word of God is a great help in prayer. If it is lodged and written in our hearts, it will form an outflowing current of prayer, full and irresistible. Promises stored in the heart are to be the fuel from which prayer receives life and warmth. Store it in your heart. It's the fuel that, that it, it's like a turbo booster to your prayer because you have stored the word of God in your heart. That's how you knock off unbelief and that's how you deal with doubt. Number six. What, are, what is the sixth thing that hinders prayers? A lack of persistence. Where people are impatient, and people expect that it must happen overnight. Now, I asked God four times last week and he hasn't done it. Where people get, for whatever reason, get tired, weary, and they just give up. So they are not persistent. We understand that when the Bible says in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and you shall open. We understand that is in the continuous tense. It's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because we don't just ask for the sake of asking. No, we expect a, 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 an answer. That's why we're asking. We expect to find. That's why we're seeking. We expect the door will open. That's why we're knocking. And if it doesn't open, I keep knocking and knocking and knocking until the door opens. I must be persistent. I pray that God will give you the strength to be persistent to believe God for what you are asking him for that you know is in accordance with his will. And Jesus gives us this, this fantastic parable that I have spoken about from this pulpit quite a number of times times to drive home this point in Luke's gospel, the 18th chapter from verse 1. And he uses this, this, this analogy, this, this story of this widow, paints a picture of this woman. He starts first by saying, verse 1, the Amplified Classic, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to turn coward, faint, lose heart, and give up. What was he saying? He was telling them, I know this thing is a possibility. In this walk of God with prayer, there will be ample opportunity. The enemy is going to try and make you get tired, weary, coward, faint, give up. 
But I want to share this story with you so that you can be persistent in prayer. And so he shares the story of this widow who goes before a judge, paints a beautiful picture of a widow who is helpless, does not understand anything about the protocol of the court, you know, has no one to speak on her behalf, the epitome of weakness, and paints a picture of this judge who is the epitome, the, the picture of callousness and hardness and wickedness. In fact, the picture is so graphic because it says this judge doesn't care about God and doesn't care about man, is as hard as they come. And he says in verse 5, Yet because this widow continues to bother me, this is what the judge says. Now, this is a judge who has no feelings, no emotions, nothing. But he says, yet because this widow continues to bother me, I will defend and protect and avenge her, lest she give me intolerable intoler annoyance and wear me out by her continual coming, or at the last she come and rail on me, or assault me, or strangle me. He, what is he saying? He's saying this crazy widow just will not give up. She's a, she's, a, she's a nutter. She's crazy. I think she's not okay. I better grant her what she wants because she's going to give me intolerable annoyance by her constantly coming. And it might even get worse. She might not just rail on me. She might assault me and even strangle me. This is a man who doesn't fear God or doesn't fear man. But he's now afraid of the persistent prayer of the widow. A woman who has no power by her persistent prayer moves the hand of a man who does not fear God, does not care about God, or does not care about man. And then Jesus makes the conclusion. Listen, my brother and my sister. Verses 6 to 8. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not our just God defend and protect and avenge his elect, his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. That's the challenge. We sometimes cry day and we forget night for many, 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 many weeks. Now, day and night is euphemism for constant, who are constantly crying to him. He goes on to say, will he defer them and delay help on their behalf? It's a question. He answers the question himself. I tell you, this is the answer. He will defend and protect and avenge them speedily. And the reason is because they didn't give up. They were persistent. My sister, don't give up on that prayer. Yes, you've been praying it for years. Perchance the magnitude of what is coming requires that amount of prayer. Hold on in prayer. Press in in prayer. Don't give up in prayer. Don't give him any rest in prayer. Take his promises back to him. Let them be the life and warmth of your prayer because you have stored them in your heart. And then he ends with this sentence. When the Son of Man comes, will he find persistence in faith on earth? Number seven, the last thing that is a hindrance. There are many more, but these are the seven that I have chosen. Number seven, an ungrateful heart. Now that's simple. Because there are so many places where we see prayer attached to gratitude as part of the protocol of approaching God in prayer. Um, the writer in the book of Philippians tells us that we shouldn't be anxious for anything, but this is how we deal with our anxiety, our concerns, our worries, by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving. It's a reminder that it doesn't matter the depth of your prayer, the, the extent of your supplications, you know, that you're bringing your requests before God, your, pet, your specific petitions. It doesn't matter until it comes in an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of thanksgiving. You know, yes, we're asking you God for something, but remember what God has done already. Count your blessings. Remember what God has done. Don't come with an ungrateful heart as if God hasn't done anything for you. And that's why when the Bible says in, in Psalms 100 verse 4, and I love the message translation, it says, enter with the password, thank you. Now, that's what it is. It is a password to God. God just loves people who are grateful. Look at the story of the ten lepers. What does Jesus say when nine go off after he has healed all ten and one comes back to him? He says, where are the nine? What is he saying? It should, you, you, should, you should have come back to say thank you. And I like how Paul puts it as he writes to the church at Colossus in Colossians, the fourth chapter and the second verse. And if, this would be my charge to you as I end. This is my charge to you. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. That's our charge. Devote yourself to prayer. Be watchful, be alert, and be thankful in your heart. Now, if we don't do that, then the enemy allows ingratitude or an ungrateful heart to become a hindrance to our prayer so that God who wants to answer our prayers is held back from answering our prayers because of any of these things that we have mentioned. If there's any of these things in your life, deal with it so that you can enter that place of a life of answered prayers. Hallelujah. And I pray that will be your portion. I pray that 2021 will be the year that you will be able to say, I have lived a year of answered prayers and other years that will come after that. I pray that God will answer your prayers in ways that will embarrass you. I pray that you will be full of testimonies of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. I pray that even when you go through difficult times, you will know God is with you. You will know he's hearing you, listening to you. You will know that your calls are not in vain. You know that because he says if you call, he will deliver you from trouble, that he will deliver you from trouble. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you and bless you. Lord, amplify your word by your spirit, heavenly Father, in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. I want to end by asking if there's anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with Christ. I started by saying the bedrock of answered prayers is a relationship with Christ. That's the starting point. And if you're out there, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you want to accept him as your Lord and Savior, well, why don't you just do it now? What better time than now? And I would love to pray with you as you accept him as your Lord and Savior. So if you're out there, just say this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I receive your son Jesus into my life as my Lord and Savior. I commit myself to a life that is pleasing to you. I turn away 
from anything that I might have done that was sinful as I embrace your son as my savior. I thank you, Father, for receiving me today into your family. I believe, Heavenly Father, by this prayer that you have received me as your son, your daughter, that I am a child of yours, and I am now born again into your family. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Welcome to God's family. God bless you.